2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but, but the one whom I have pained? And I, wrote, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. So, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and, and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, uh, I, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I was a kid growing up, my parents, particularly my dad, would say something to me just before administering discipline. Now, maybe your parents said the same thing to you. And to be totally honest, these words, when they were originally spoken to me, I didn't believe a single syllable of them. Just before my dad would administer some painful punishment, he would say to me, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Now, I'm telling you, as a boy, I thought, liar, liar, pants on fire. There is no way under the sun this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Now, to be totally honest, I really was suspect of the honesty, the sincerity of that all the way until I was a father myself. And in the position that my dad was in and having to administer discipline to my own children. And even as I, those same words came out of my mouth to my own children, I was aware that they probably thought I was lying too. Because when you're being disciplined, it's almost impossible to understand how much sorrow that discipline is causing the one who is doing the disciplining. But friends, listen to me carefully. What you discipline testifies to what you believe matters. And what you discipline testifies to who and what you view as important. I'm gonna talk about this a little bit more later, but, but the honesty of it is, when kids who are not mine do things that are wrong, I don't have the same compulsion to discipline them as I do my children. It's not because I don't like those kids, but they don't enjoy the same love and relationship that my children have with me. And frankly, you can tell what is important to me and my family by what we discipline. There are some things we let go. It doesn't matter. And there are some things that, that, that will, will draw severe punishment because they matter quite significantly. So in this passage, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's referencing his 
first letter, we, we would call 1 Corinthians. And he says, now, I wrote some pretty harsh things to you in that letter. And they were indeed. In fact, we're going to talk about this later, but there were some pretty nasty sexual perverted things that were happening inside the church. And he had called the church to confront that sin, to deal with that sin. And he's writing now to talk about it. He said, listen, my heart wasn't to cause you pain, but, but I was willing to do that because I was so brokenhearted over the reality of sin. I wanted you to be brokenhearted over the reality of that sin. And now, as he writes again to them, He's, he's encouraging the church. You, 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 have, you have done well with the disciplining of that sin. Now it's time to, to forgive and to restore. I really just have two points this morning. Godly discipline is born out of sorrow and love. And so in our passage, Paul teaches these two things to the church about godly discipline. Number one, that we should weep and have sorrow over sin. What breaks your heart is a testimony to what you believe. And so, so we ought to be brokenhearted over the things that break God's heart. We ought to hate the things that God hates. We ought to be sorrowful over the things that God is sorrowful over. So there ought to be a testimony in your personal life, in your family life, and in the church life of being sorrowful, being brokenhearted over the reality of sin. Number two, we must be ready to forgive when there is repentance. I hope you hear very, very clearly today. Discipline has as its ultimate purpose, restoration. If you're disciplining just for disciplining, that's called abuse. Godly discipline always has as its desire, restoration. That ought to be happening in your family. Discipline your children so that that relationship can be restored. And it ought to happen within the church. Discipline so that relationship can be restored. So we must be ready, quick, ready, on edge to forgive when there has been repentance. And I want to sort of give you a little preview here. All the times when we think about restoration, forgiveness, we think, well, sort of external, but as you understand what's happening in this passage, that the, the, the mess and probably the family conflict that's happening in this passage, this isn't just light, light, frou-frou uh, stuff. Paul is asking him to restore a brother who is deeply wounded, those that are in the church. And he's calling them to restore him, to forgive him because of repentance. This is not, this is not cheap grace at all. This is costly Indeed. So just those two things, weeping over sin and being ready to forgive. Let's begin with weeping over sin. Now, some of this is rather, rather basic, but basic things are important, friends. So number one, sin should cause sorrow in our lives. Sin should cause sorrow in our lives. Now, it's not clear what particular situation that Paul is referencing in, 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 this, in this 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He doesn't, he doesn't say it specifically, but it's probably, um, refer, he's probably referring to what he talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, in, in that passage, Paul re referenced a man who was living in sin, and this is what he wrote. Now, let's just, this is nasty. So what Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. 
Now, before I read the rest of it, understand where the Corinthian church is. They are in the context of the city of Corinth, which is well, well known for its unrestrained sexual perversion. To be called a Corinthian was not a good word. I mean, it was sort of synonymous with, with wickedness. And Paul is saying, is, I'm getting reports that there's sexual perversion within the church that the pagans around you don't even participate in. And then he names it. He says, for a man has his father's wife. Now that makes Thanksgiving lunch a little weird, doesn't it? Now it could be that Paul was referencing another issue that he wrote about in a letter that we do not have. But whatever he is referencing here, it's clear that it's been destructive. It's clear that it's, the sin has been, uh, that has affected the church greatly. And he uses the word sorrow seven times in the first seven verses. The word there simply means a state of mental pain and anxiety, sadness, sorrow, distress. Along with these words, he talks about affliction, anguish, and tears. Friends, the reality is sin breaks the heart of God. Your sin, my sin, breaks the heart of God. And if it breaks the heart of God, it should and ought to break the heart of every believer. It is in discord for something to break the heart of God and for believers who are children of God to not be affected by it. That is, that is in conflict if sin breaks the heart of God, it all, it must break our hearts too. Some of you are parents, some of you are grandparents. Some of you can tell a story right now of your children or your grandchildren who are participating in sin that you can see right now how that sin is sowing the reality of destruction in their life. And you're brokenhearted over it. Listen, I've cried and prayed with many of you over those things. Because you know what that is sowing in the life of your children. You know what it's sowing in the life of your grandchildren. You, you see how that is drawing them away from the Lord and bringing about all kinds of consequence into their lives. And you are absolutely brokenhearted over that. Is that not the same way that God sees us, his very children? He cannot be okay. He cannot be um, disconcerned with, with, with the reality of sin and the destruction that it brings in our lives. This sorrow should be, at the, should be the heart burden of every believer. The reason why I say that is because sorrow will first and foremost draw you to pray. I get asked to pray for a lot of things by a lot of people. One of the things I've tried to employ in my life is when somebody says, Pastor, will you pray for such and such? It's easy for me to say yes and then move on with my day and forget about that. So I've tried um, in, in my life when somebody says, Pastor, will you pray for me? As we walk away, just, just to pray for that issue right then and there. And can I tell you a little secret? There are some things that don't grab my heart very much. Somebody said, oh, pastor, I stumped my toe last week. Will you pray for me? Now I'm going to pray for your toe, but I'm not going to give a lot of mental anguish over your stumped toe, right? 
the first church we pastored, uh, the church I served in during seminary, it was a precious church, a little way out in the middle of nowhere country church. It, the community did not even get a dot on the map. The dot on the map was a community up the road that was smaller than ours. The speed limit didn't even slow down when it went through Garner, Texas. And we used to have prayer time in the middle of uh, Sunday morning service where anybody could, could share a prayer request. And oftentimes there would be a kid there that would raise their hand and they would get called on. And they'd say, yeah, my cousin's friend who lives uh, in, in uh, upstate uh, somewhere, he's got a friend whose dog died last week. We'd write that down. And I'm just going to tell you, total honesty, I may not have prayed for those dogs, Okay. But there are some things, friends, that when you share that prayer request, I mean, it's a heavy burden. You've got a brother who doesn't know Jesus and is sick and about to die. You've got a child that's actively rebelling against the gospel. Now, those things weigh, don't they? They weigh on us. And it draws us to prayer. Oh, God, would you intervene in that life? Godly sorrow first and foremost draws us to prayer Godly sorrow also identifies what is not right. We ought to be brokenhearted over what is not right and rejoice in righteousness. Godly sorrow keeps you from becoming, listen to me carefully, comfortable. Friends, I think the the most dangerous thing to the modern church is how comfortable we have become. We'll sit on a pew with somebody we know who is living in sin and not say a word because we've grown comfortable. We have children and aunts and uncles and cousins and parents and family members that we'll enjoy a, a family meal together with who we know are absolutely heading to eternity and damnation and we are comfortable eating chicken with them on Sunday afternoon. Oh, friends, godly sorrow. We don't like it because it won't let us be comfortable with those who are living in sin. We all, sin ought to cause us sorrow And love ought to motivate us to speak truth. Paul writes in verse 4 that out of his sorrow, he wrote to the church, not that they too would be made sorrowful, but, sorrowful, but that they would know his love for the church. True love motivates and compels us to confront sin. Love compels us to actively oppose someone who is about to come to harm. I've used this illustration before. Imagine we get out of church today, and we're all standing around, and one of your children, little ones, they can get away from you without you noticing in a hurry. And I, I notice that one of your little ones is walking out into Ava Street, and there's a big old car coming. And I'm going to tell you what's about to happen. I am not going to turn to you and say, dear friend, did you know your child is about to be run over by a car? You might want to give attention. No, what I'm probably going to do is go and grab that kid by their collar and drag them back off the road. They may scream and cry. They may, they may work against me. They may try to, to get away from me. 
But I'm going to use all of my strength, all of my ability to drag them, draw them, pull them away from danger. And when I get them out of danger and the car goes by, they may even be mad at me. But you know who won't be mad at me? Their mom and daddy. Because they'll recognize that danger was averted. Now, why would I do that to a kid? Is it because I don't like children and I like to make them cry? No. Because love would motivate. And by the way, that would motivate all of you, would it not? If you saw somebody about to experience danger, are you not motivated to draw, to drag, to pull? How then can we watch people head toward hell and not be concerned at all? Love motivates us to speak truth. Proverbs chapter 27 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Paul was willing to speak hard truths to the church, not because he enjoyed causing them pain. He was willing to speak hard truths to the church because he loved them and desperately wanted them to avoid the judgment and discipline of God. Now, if you'll notice the first four verses of this chapter, he's talking about, I didn't really want to come and miss out on the joy that you were, I expected for you to bring. What he's talking about there is those hard truths he knew would make it hard for them to be happy with one another when he came. He wanted to enjoy being with them. And speaking those hard truths was, not, was going to make the, the being together not so joy-filled. And yet he spoke them anyway. He was willing to speak hard truths to the church because he loved them and desperately wanted them to avoid the judgment and discipline of God. One of the most difficult passages in the New Testament is written by Paul in his rebuke to the church in 1 Corinthians 5. There he writes, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is written not out of hate or malice, but deep sorrow over sin and love for the saints. Now just as a an additional word here. We understand that discipline is motivated by love and sorrow. Sorrow over sin, love for the one who is, who is living in it. Discipline is, testifies to who you are responsible for, responsible to, and what is true and false. I said at the beginning, I don't have the same motivation to discipline children that are not my kids as I do my my own children. I think one of the great struggles of the modern church is that we've not done well defining who we're responsible to and for. And we've not done well defining what is true and false. And you say, well, yes, we have. We've got faithful pulpits. We're faithfully preaching the gospel. That is true. But here's the great, here's the great condemnation of the modern church. There are people who say they are members of us who we know are actively living in sin. And there are quite a bit of people who say they are members of us who we don't even know where they are. We're not testifying well to who we're responsible to and we're responsible for in that. And because we have not spoken honestly to one another, we've not done well declaring what is true and false. I do think our pulpits and our Sunday school lecterns have done well to teach and preach the truth faithfully. 
But I don't think we have done well speaking the truth in love when it is costly and painful. Truth, even when it causes sorrow, must be motivated and spoken in love for the glory of God and for the salvation of the one who's living in sin. Now, that's the hard word. That's really the first, that's really the first four verses. But, but then Paul moves in the second half here to, to encouraging the church to forgive. Now, once again, we don't know particularly that the situation is very likely 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the, and the man who had his father's wife. We don't know that. That's what most folks think. That's what he's talking about here. But we do know that he's calling them to forgive. And the reason why we oftentimes assume that it's probably talking about that situation is that you and I can appreciate the fact that when there has been sin that is so intimate and destructive within the church, you may be able to academically understand forgiveness, but the actual actually forgiving and receiving back into fellowship is awful, is awful hard. But Paul calls us here, not only are we to be sorrowful and weep over sin, but we must be ready to forgive. And just a couple of things about being ready to forgive. Number one, we must be ready to forgive the repentant believer. Apparently the church was sorrowful over sin and had exercised discipline on, on the one who was living in sin. That's why it says in verse six, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. They had, they had confronted the sin and Paul says, you've done well, it's enough. But it also seems that the church had not been willing to forgive and restore the man. In other words, they got to the discipline part, but they were now struggling with the forgiveness part, the restoration part. Paul's encouraging the church in verse 7 to forgive and restore for the sake of the repentant believer. Now listen to me. I said at the beginning, I'll say it again. Church discipline must be motivated by restoration. It must be. That must be the desire, the goal, the, the, the motivation behind it all. Church discipline testifies that sin has, has separated and restoration is needed. That's the whole idea here. The end goal of church discipline is to bring the sinning believer to repentance and then be restored rightly to the church. The danger that Paul recognizes is the church's refusal to restore is that it would lead the repentant believer to being overwhelmed with sorrow. Now, what does he mean by that? He means overwhelmed by sorrow with no hope of forgiveness. Overwhelmed by sorrow with no hope of restoration. You see this in the secular world's attempt to enforce its own morality. Now, there's a lot of political talk about cancel culture, but pay attention with a theological mind about it and you'll see a, a deeper brokenness. Cancel culture is motivated by a, a level of sort of a, 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 a trying to enforce a, a moral code, fine. But the sadness of that is that moral code only has condemnation, it does not have restoration. If you're canceled by the secular world, you are canceled. But you're, there's no mechanism, there's no way to be forgiven, to be restored, to be brought back. That is not the testimony of the church or its discipline. The testimony of the church and its discipline is always, you may be disciplined, you may be put out, you may be separated from the fellowship of the church, but it's always done with a desire and a heart that when you come to repentance, that you'll be restored and brought back in. Repentance leads, must lead to restoration. 
for the sake of the repentant believer. The church should reaffirm their love for the saint through forgiveness and restoration. Be ready to forgive for the repentant believer. Be ready to forgive for the Lord. Paul points to a greater witness of Christ in verse 10. Look at what he says. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. You see, forgiveness flows from knowing Jesus. That's why the secular culture doesn't do it. Because forgiveness flows from knowing Jesus. All those who have been saved, by definition, have been forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with Jesus. I have a good friend of mine, and he was horribly mistreated. He's another pastor, and he was publicly lied about and mistreated, and it made me mad. I know you don't believe I ever get mad, but I got pretty mad. And I said, there's some things we can do. We can fight back. We can bow up. We can do some things. My brother said to me, he's a little bit older, a little bit wiser. He said to me, there's nothing they have accused me of that's worse than what Jesus has already forgiven me of. Let it stand. Now, I wasn't happy with that, but let it stand. All those who've been saved have, by definition, been forgiven of Jesus. And I, by Jesus, and I'm going to tell you something, friends. There's nothing you'll forgive another brother or sister of that Jesus hasn't already forgiven you much more of. We must forgive as a testimony to our salvation. Those who have been forgiven, forgive. It's a testimony to what we've known. We must forgive as a testimony to the gospel. If we're to call the lost to come and know the forgiveness of Jesus, we testify to that in the way we forgive one another. We must forgive as a testimony to the presence of Christ. Jesus dwells among us and with us. Because of the hope of the gospel that we share with the presence of Jesus, we must be ready to forgive. We forgive for the repentant believer. We give, forgive for the Lord. And I think we forgive for the testimony and for the sake of the church. In verse 11, Paul gives a warning that a church that does not forgive gives Satan an opportunity to take advantage of us. Listen to what he says. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In other words, we need to be very aware that we are under constant attack and efforts of Satan to bring destruction among us. And we need to be careful not to give Satan any undue opportunity Should not that, so that he, we would not be outwitted by Satan. A church that allows an unforgiving spirit to grow becomes less in tune with the working of the spirit and more susceptible to the working of Satan. That ought to sit heavy, shouldn't it? A church that allows an unforgiving spirit to grow begins to rely more on the will of the flesh rather than the will of God. For the health of the church, listen to me, for the health of the church, we must be ready to forgive. 
for the protection of the church. So this is where it gets us. Well, we don't want to let those folks back in. But listen to me. For the spiritual protection of the church, we must be ready to forgive. With fear and trembling, we must confront sin. And with humility, knowing the depravity of our own sin, we must be ready to forgive. Both must be happening at the same time. Confronting sin, being sorrowful over it, confronting sin. Sometimes putting a brother or sister out of fellowship because of it. And when there is repentance, being quick and ready to forgive. Thinking about the command that Paul gives to the Corinthian church to forgive. It may be easy to wonder how they could be so faithful to discipline and then so resistant to forgiveness. Like I said, we don't know the details, but we can guess that the consequences, if it is the man that is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5, we can can guess that the consequences of the man's sins were not isolated just to himself. He'd been with his father's wife. There were probably children and siblings in the church, maybe aunts and uncles in the church, friends in the church, his father, of his father's wife, of the man who had sinned, of the man's wife who had sinned, the man's children who had sinned. If Paul is referencing the issue he dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5, then the issue was that the offending man was sexually connected to his own father's wife, and you can imagine the hurt and brokenness the sin must have caused and the relationship strain that it had created. Surely there were hurt family and friends in the church. There may have even been some in the church who have been harmed, directly harmed by abandonment and the sexual perversion. We don't know the specifics, but it's certainly easy to imagine that some in the church were glad that the man was no longer in fellowship. You see, one of the things that we tend to do is just turn our back and turn our face. If we can ignore it, we don't have to deal with it. You ever had a place in your house that had a little water damage and wood began to rot? You have two options. You can rip out that wood or you can paint over it. (laughs) Now, if you paint over it, it will look good for a while, but it doesn't fix the rot. At some point, the, the structural degradation will be exposed and even the paint won't hold it together. I can appreciate, I think you can appreciate why the, there would be a temptation within the Corinthian church. Look, the brother's gone. We don't have to look at him every Sunday. We don't have to talk about it. He is a reminder of the brokenness. He's a reminder of the cost. He's a reminder of the unpleasantries. It would maybe just be better if he'd stay away. Paul calls the church to forgive no matter the personal difficulty. Jesus has forgiven us of far worse and far more. Forgiving a brother or a sister who has harmed us is a reminder, yes, of their sin and their harm, but it's also a reminder of how much Jesus has forgiven us and the sin and the harm and the cost that we caused our Lord. We must be willing to confront sin and we must be willing to forgive sin when the sinner repents, no matter, 
no matter the personal cost. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.